In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Thank you for not walking out during the gospel. (laughs) It's not Lent yet, but it feels like it with those words of Jesus. I remember some years ago, I was uh, early for the service, and I was talking to someone who came in the church, and she explained that she had not been in church in 25 years and um, was curious. And so we read that gospel, and I felt like running across the room to get her and say, we're going to talk about this. (laughs) But to hear in sort of one paragraph all of one's worst fears about what the church supposedly cares most about. We'll get to that. The first lesson comes from Deuteronomy. And in it, Moses is giving Israel a a huge pep talk. Uh, We don't know the exact uh, geography of of this section of scripture, but uh, I imagine it sort of at the top of a high mountain with the whole expanse of promised land there in front. And so Moses says with great drama, all of this is yours, and so choose it, choose life. Before you, before us, is a decision. Choosing life or choosing death, so choose life. In just a few weeks, the first Sunday in Lent, we'll have another version of this. I don't know if the two are tied together, but I think of this one when I read the other one, where it's, it's the devil himself who's, who's showing Jesus all that could be his. And it's as though the devil says to Jesus, what will you choose? But Jesus, knowing the scripture, knowing God, Jesus says, I choose life now and forever. And away the devil scurries. Moses says, choose life. Today is set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, walking in God's ways, observing the commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and you'll become numerous. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live loving the Lord your God. Sometimes choosing life can be every bit as dramatic as Moses makes it sound, can't it? We can feel like we're standing on a, a mountaintop of, of spiritual choices. Do we choose this direction or that one? Do we choose this job or that one? Do we choose to be with this person or that one? There can be these enormous, weighty, heavy decisions that feel like they have within them life or death, and sometimes they do. But often, choosing life over death has much more to do with a small decision, an everyday decision, a decision we make hourly or even by the minute, choosing which conversation to be a part of. Especially in these days where everything seems tinged with politics, um, we can sometimes feel ourselves choosing, will this conversation add to life or does it move in the other direction? (laughs) Choosing what to eat or drink comes down to this moment, this morning, this day. It's not something we choose 20 years from now, choosing life. But did I eat breakfast? If so, what did I eat? 
How much do I drink? How much do I smoke? On and on and on. These aren't enormous, dramatic questions, or shouldn't be. They're daily, minute-by-minute decisions we make, either for death, the direction of death, or life, the direction of life. That's the purpose of today's gospel. That's what Jesus is doing, trying to help his hearers look at the nitty-gritty, the day-to-day, the here-and-now of choosing life. Jesus is talking about living with what is called in religious tradition the law. It means not so much the civil law or whatever the laws of a community might be, but the, the law of Moses, the, the laws handed down through ancient Judaism, uh, the Ten Commandments, the tradition of the covenant, but also with the wisdom interpreted that in those, those laws. Well, the gospel can sound like laying down the law sometimes, But it's Jesus' whole reason for being here to embody the law and to help us think more deeply. Jesus reinterprets the old law. He says it's not just enough to keep the law, and that probably won't work very well anyway. The key to living faithfully is to try to understand the things that move below the surface of laws, of motivations and moods, of fears and fantasies, all those things that go into choosing death or life. And so then Jesus raises some of these well-known laws, pieces from the Ten Commandments and other wisdom. Jesus says to his audience, you, you know the commandment, you shall not murder But then he goes further, and he tries to raise up some of the things that can lead to murder. We might think the talk of murder is extreme until we think about our own issues of anger or frustration or road rage or minor annoyances that can easily escalate. How many times have we said out louder to ourselves, I could have killed so-and-so? How many times do we say that? Do we add energy to that thought before it becomes an act? Jesus is suggesting that we we begin these big dramatic decisions of death or life first in here and in here by, by harboring a grudge or nursing a resentment. And if we're not careful, that just continues to grow. Indeed, Jesus says we should work at reconciliation. He speaks of going to the temple in Jerusalem for worship, but if you remember your neighbor that you've got something against or he's or she's got something against you, then leave your gift at the temple and go and try to be reconciled. Notice how Jesus puts it. He doesn't say if you have something against your neighbor, but he says if your neighbor has something against you, He puts the onus on us. That brings into question our sometimes waiting for persons so-and-so to come and say that they know we were right all along. It's like a friend of mine sometimes says, she talks about talking to her mother about problems with her sister, and she says, but I'm right. And the mother says, I know you're right, but make it right. Our tendency is to ignore the problem, especially at church or in any organization. If we just avoid such and such, 
If we avoid saying a certain thing, then we avoid future conflicts, right? And yet they come with us to the altar. Jesus suggests that any break in the community is something that begins internally, but it can come out. And so be careful, observe, and bring it to the temple in prayer and ask for God's help. Prayers of confession are beginning. A note, a phone call, an email, a conversation with the other person is a beginning. A prayer for one's enemy or one's less than friend is a beginning. That hard to get along with, sister or brother, it's a beginning because it opens our hearts to the possibility of God's grace for the other person and for ourselves. Now, if we took Jesus' words literally, we'd have a whole lot of unused communion wafers every Sunday. I don't think Jesus means for us always and everywhere to resist receiving Holy Communion when we have a problem against us or against another person. Instead, Holy Communion, as one early church father put it, is, is medicine for immortality. It makes us better. Sometimes receiving communion is, is just that extra thing we need in order to make the first step toward reconciliation. As we move further into today's gospel, Jesus leads us into messy territory indeed. He says, you remember the old commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But then he goes on to warn about lust and all the other urges and senses that if given energy and encouragement lead to adultery. His answer is to watch the emotions, watch the heart, watch what's going on inside. Especially in this day, we might say, well, a partner, a spouse doesn't know what we see on the internet or what we do in our own time. But you know, God knows. And if a distance begins in the heart, it eventually can come out. That's what Jesus is pointing to. And then he really starts preaching. He talks about divorce. (laughs) Divorce is one of those topics like abortion or homosexuality or many issues that we really should dedicate a, a month of Sundays and deep scriptural study with. We don't have that time today. But as people of faith, we can remind ourselves that while we believe the scripture that says all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for reproving, for setting things straight, for disciplining, at the same time, we also believe, especially as Episcopalians, we believe that the Holy Spirit's work of revelation is ongoing. As we read Holy Scripture today, we will hear it differently than our forebears heard it. And our children and grandchildren will hear it differently than we do. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus would agree there are times when a divorce is an unfaithful decision. It's made out of selfishness or spiritual immaturity. And when that happens, there are lots of resources to to say, oh, I messed up, I'm sorry, to do confession, to do all sorts of things, to meet with a counselor, to talk with a religious official, on and on and on. But then there are also times when a divorce is the only faithful course of action. When there are issues of abuse or oppression, um, a divorce is a gift from God and opens a new life ahead. 
And the church should be and is at its best when it encourages the way of life always, not the way of death. We choose life with an attitude that we adopt when we wake up in the morning. We choose life in our thoughts, in our conversations, in our willingness to apologize, in our ability to forgive, in our faith to move on in the Spirit of God, in our thinking about what will follow in the future. Jesus suggests that choosing life is never as easy as memorizing the Scripture, memorizing the law, and trying to follow it. We all know overly religious people who are mean as rattlesnakes and not much fun to be around. Jesus is getting to what does the law do for you? How do you live it out? Do you live a life of love and justice and mercy and charity? Some of you know the the work and the words of Sister Joan Chittister. She's a Benedictine nun who amazingly is still uh, considered a nun by the Roman Catholic Church. She gets away with all sorts of things. I think she gets away with it because she sounds a lot like Jesus. She has a fierce love for all people and for the church. And yet she can speak truth in honesty and with great danger to herself. She has no time for phrases and platitudes. Some of her words from an interview a few years ago have become famous and have become memes that go through social media, especially in these politically charged days. But she takes on that little phrase, pro-life. And she suggests that people think about what that means. What does it mean to be pro-life? And she says, I do not believe that just because you're opposed to abortion, that that makes you pro-life. In fact, I think in many cases, your morality is deeply lacking if all you want is a child born, but not a child fed, not a child educated, not a child housed. And why would I think that you don't? Because you don't want any tax money to go there. That's not pro-life, that's pro-birth. She continues, we need a much broader conversation on what the morality of being pro-life is. Notice how careful she is. You still don't know where she might find herself in that whole complicated range of perspectives and beliefs. But she makes the point of Jesus that it's not about a phrase that can be put on a placard or a banner It's about the way we orient our lives, the way we spend money, the way we spend time, the way we treat one another, the way we aim to love our enemy. Before us is set life and prosperity, death and adversity. If we mean to obey the commandments of the Lord our God, walking in his ways, then we shall live. We shall live in such a way that our life is outlived by the one who is love himself. Redeemed by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, let us choose life this day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.